Hello, knowledge seekers. In this episode of 20 Minute Books, we delve into A People Betrayed, a probing narrative that scrutinizes the dismal failures of the international community during the Rwandan genocide. With her investigative prowess, British journalist Linda Melvin brings to light the severe consequences of inaction by global leaders and institutions faced with one of history's most appalling atrocities. The book uncovers how a mix of indifference, bureaucratic inertia, and racism led to the preventable murders of an estimated one million civilians over a span of three tormenting months. Author Linda Melvin combines decades of research and journalistic experience with her time at the award-winning Insight team of the Sunday Times to craft this revealing account. Providing expertise to the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, she has cemented her place as a leading authority on the topic. A People Betrayed is a must-read for those who seek to understand the intricacies of international policy and its dire repercussions on the ground. It's a vital text for history enthusiasts eager to explore the haunting legacy of colonialism in Africa and for any reader interested in unearthing the troubling aspects of the global order. Join us as we explore the depths of human failure and the urgent lessons it imparts on global responsibility and intervention. A People Betrayed The Role of the West in Rwanda's Genocide Introduction Uncovering the Prelude to Atrocity The Origins of Rwandan Ethnic Conflict Rwandan soil was indeed fertile, but not just for the crops that sprawled across its picturesque hills. It was fertile, too, for seeds of hatred sown during a tempest of European colonialism. As the world looks back at the horrific events of the 1994 genocide, We must trace the roots of this disaster to understand how a million lives were snuffed out in a matter of weeks. In a tale as old as time, the colonizing nations, Belgium and Germany, cemented the divisions among Rwandans, magnifying differences between the Hutu and Tutsi ethnic groups. Colonial authorities lavished one group with power while suppressing the other, setting the stage for decades of simmering resentment and animosity the calm before the storm, a storm that would mercilessly engulf the small nation in unparalleled violence. Waves of hatred transmitted, the role of radio propaganda as clouds of conflict gathered on Rwanda's horizon, a different kind of storm brewed over the airwaves. Radio became both the hearth and the fuel for mass hysteria, transmitting not signals of entertainment or news, but a relentless deluge of hate speech and propaganda. Radio Miles Collines, infamous for its vile broadcasts, was not simply a station of misinformation. It was the very mouthpiece of genocide. It spewed extremist rhetoric, turning neighbor against neighbor and normalizing the inconceivable, mass extermination. Listeners, once lulled by radio's familiarity, now found themselves ensnared in a frenzy implanted in their minds by the relentless drum of twisted words, a French obsession with destructive consequences. The distant echo of France's influence in Rwanda manifested in the oddest form, an obsession held by the French president. Strangely fixated on Rwanda, 
France's leadership inexplicably lent support to the genocidal government, offering military training and assistance that would later be turned against the innocent. Suffused with diplomatic mysteries and shadowed by the specter of neocolonialism, France's entanglement in Rwanda was enigmatic. It protected the architects of mass slaughter, placing political strategy over human lives, and watched from afar as the country it once influenced drowned in blood and sorrow, the preventable catastrophe and the world's silence. Sadly, the genocide's most haunting aspect is embedded in its very preventability. Years before the first machete was raised in malice, the rumblings of ethnic cleansing reached the ears of the powerful. European nations, the United States, and particularly the United Nations, they were all forewarned. But when the moment came to act, a terrible hush suffused the halls of power. As the death toll mounted and Rwanda bled, the international community's inertia spoke louder than the cries of the afflicted. It prompts us to fathom how a calamity of such magnitude, wholly visible on the precipice of humanity's conscience, was met with grievous inaction, and how history's pages are stained with blood that could have been spared. To journey through Rwanda's story is to confront chilling truths about humanity's darkest capacities and the sorrowful realization that, though the genocide lay in a grave of the past, its lessons echo hauntingly in the annals of our time. Part 1. Carved Boundaries and Caste Identities Rwanda's Colonial Legacy In the twilight of the 19th century, a critical event unfolded that set in motion a century of turmoil for Rwanda. When King Rwabugiri, a ruler of great military prowess, hosted German Count Gustav Adolf von Gotzen, he was unaware that his kingdom had already been bequeathed to a foreign empire at a conference in faraway Berlin. This moment marked the beginning of a century-long journey toward one of history's darkest chapters. Rwanda, dubbed the Switzerland of Africa, was no rudimentary society. It boasted a vibrant court life, a testament to its societal sophistication. Yet, the Europeans who set foot upon Rwandan lands sought explanations rooted in their own biases to account for such a refined culture in black Africa. They theorized that the Tutsi, whom they perceived as physically distinctive and superior, hailed from elsewhere and had subdued the local Hutu. This European narrative of racial hierarchy planted the seeds for future calamity. It was under the auspices of Belgian colonization that these distinctions were calcified. Identity became tethered to physical attributes as the Belgians, assuming the mantle from the Germans after World War I, catalogued the populace in a divisive census. The Tutsi were inscribed access to privileges, while the Hutu majority was relegated to subjugation shaping an ethnic binary where none had existed so rigidly before. The savage rule of Belgium inflicted forced labor and brutality upon the Rwandan people, particularly the Hutu, who toiled in neighboring diamond mines. Ironically, this exploitation gave rise to a unified Hutu identity and sparked flames of nationalism. A Belgian priest's assistance in penning a manifesto became the clarion call for Hutu emancipation. As the Hutu majority rallied to the cause, an unsettling realization dawned. The colonially spun tale of the Tutsi as alien conquerors had taken root in the collective psyche. 
the manifesto's resonance revealed an unsettling transformation, the misguided acceptance of a colonial fable that catalyzed a deep-seated animosity, pushing Rwanda toward an abyss from which return would be harrowing and bloodstained. Part 2. The Monarchy's Demise and a Nation's Descent into Despair Imagine a country on the precipice of change, a king who stands as a symbol of unity, and a sudden, mysterious death that violently shakes the entire foundation of a society. This was Rwanda in 1959, when King Ruda Higwa, a figure of Tutsi lineage, died under questionable circumstances. Accusations of foul play by Belgian doctors at the behest of Hutu radicals ignited flames of fury, setting Rwanda on an irreversible path toward chaos and collapse. King Rudahigwa's passing brought a cascade of pivotal shifts. The monarchy was dismantled, political parties emerged with unprecedented fervor, and by 1961, Rwanda declared its independence. But with that declaration came the waves of a social storm that would rage for decades, fostering an environment ripe for impending catastrophe. As Rwanda stumbled into a state of militarized civil governance under Belgian enforcement, the people grew all too accustomed to the cold realities of military rule. Curfews, relentless identity checks, and the common sight of soldiers patrolling the streets, these elements wove themselves into the backdrop of Rwandan life. Amidst this strained climate, Hutu-majority governments, bolstered by French and Belgian support, began systematically marginalizing the Tutsi, stripping them of representation, educational opportunities, and basic dignities. On a dark underlying current, French-officered Rwandan police meticulously crafted dossiers on Tutsi citizens, a chilling harbinger of the brutalities to come. And soon, the blood would flow. Spurred by local officials, Frenzied mobs turned tools of the earth into instruments of death, claiming thousands of Tutsi lives. The extent of the massacre was so grievous that the international community could not turn a blind eye. Philosopher Bertrand Russell decried the horrors that befell this forsaken land. Even the nation's own Gendarmerie Nationale, operating under Belgian command, participated in the slaughter, cementing Rwanda's descent into violence. As the corpses lay upon the soil, a mass exodus began. Refugees, their numbers lost to ambiguity but likely reaching a harrowing million, sought shelter in makeshift camps strewn across the borders. Yet within this desperate diaspora, the seeds of resistance took root. The Rwandan Patriotic Front, birthed from opposition to Hutu dominance and growing in Nairobi's shadow, prepared to reclaim their homeland by the sword if necessary. Ugandan refugee camps became military training grounds. As Tutsi youth, now soldiers in waiting, filled over a quarter of the Ugandan army's ranks, the drumbeat of war palpitated beneath the surface, as the RPF amassed both strength and arms for what would signal the beginning of an invasion, the prelude to a deeper, graver conflict that would soon engulf Rwanda in unimaginable tragedy. Part 3 When Civil Unrest Cloaks a Gathering Storm Dawn broke on October 1, 1990, to a day unlike any other in Rwanda's history. The day the ground invasion by the Rwandan Patriotic Front, RPF, unfolded. Born of a sense of rightful return, 
thousands of deserting Ugandan soldiers set their sights on Rwandan territory. But what awaited them was a robust defense. The Rwandan army, reinforced by French special forces, was no sitting duck. In the aftermath, the RPF was driven back into the unforgiving embrace of the Virunga Mountains. Enter Paul Kagame, a figure whose dedication to the Tutsi cause saw him abandon his role in the Ugandan army to bolster the RPF's faltering ranks. With the precision of a master strategist, Kagame transformed a beleaguered group into a formidable guerrilla force that began to tilt the scales, sowing the seeds of a potential revolution. Yet, ironically, it was the image of a democracy under siege that bound the international community to Rwanda's government. The army swelled, military coffers bristled, and arms flowed in, an influx fueled by deals that would implicate future UN leadership. Rwanda's civil war was not just a domestic strife, but a maelstrom that drew global players into its vortex. But with the torrent of weapons came devastation. The Rwandan economy crumbled, public services disintegrated, and countless Rwandans fled their shattered homes. The country's descent was mirrored by its ascendance to a grim position amongst Africa's top arms importers. The cost of war bled the nation dry, accounting for a staggering percentage of Rwanda's entire budget. As the war's chaos settled like a pall over Kigali, extremism found fertile ground to thrive. Putrid ideology seeped through the capital, disseminated by a well-oiled propaganda machine and enforced by the brutish hands of militant factions like the Interahamwe. This paramilitary unit, an arm of the president's own party, was a gestating menace, quietly honing the arts of mass murder in the shadows. The fog of war obscured the true malignancy of the so-called community work sessions. In 1992, the shadowy Interahamwe demonstrated their lethal potential at Bugesera, executing a massacre masked as brush clearance, a grim euphemism for ethnic cleansing. 3,000 souls fell victim to orchestrated bloodshed, and the Rwandan security apparatus dipped its hands into innocence's blood. The Bugesera massacre should have been a wake-up call to the world. Instead, it was a testing ground that emboldened perpetrators. By granting impunity, authorities conveyed a sinister message. In Rwanda, unspeakable acts could be committed without consequence. As we shall discover, that lethal presumption would prove devastatingly accurate, sending ripples of horror through the heart of Rwanda and etching the prelude to one of history's most unfathomable human tragedies. Part 4. The Arusha Accords. A Failed Promise of Peace. The stage was set in Arusha, Tanzania, where months of intense negotiations between the Rwandan government and the RPF culminated in the signing of the Arusha Accords. An international consortium, including prominent African nations alongside the United States, France and Belgium, had successfully mediated what many hoped would be a definitive end to Rwanda's civil war. The Accords promised sweeping reforms, the right of return for refugees, and a merger of armies under the watchful eye of a United Nations peacekeeping force. Yet behind the facade of diplomatic triumph lurked a dark truth. President Habyarimana's regime never intended to implement the accords. Instead, they were plotting the unthinkable, 
the systematic extermination of the Tutsi people. The seeds of conspiracy had been sown in December 1991, when Habyarimana gathered his military brass and scribed a new definition of the enemy, extending beyond the RPF to encompass any dissent within the nation. Fueled by Colonel Theoneste Bagosora's radical Hutu ideology, Rwanda's government discreetly amassed an arsenal while publicly playing the part of a peacemaker. The pinnacle of this subterfuge was a multi-million dollar arms deal struck with France, even as Arusha negotiations unfolded, weapons flooded in by the ton alongside orders for agricultural tools that bore no relation to farming needs, a cover for the horrid implements of genocide. In an elaborate charade, arms found their way to militias and civilians across Rwanda. Unbeknownst to the wider world, villages bristled with caches that held not just weapons, but the means for a mass slaughter. UN inspectors would later uncover the chilling poise of a nation armed to the teeth, with disproportionate machete counts shadowing the population figures. Amidst this dangerous build-up, a new player entered the scene. Radio Television, Libre de Mil Colin, RTLM. This station became a cultural hit, its inebriated hosts using colloquial charm to beguile an unsuspecting audience. Yet the fangs of RTLM lay hidden behind the music, a sinister agenda that would soon spill forth a torrent of vitriolic hate speech, marking individuals for death as if reading a morbid roll call over the airwaves. It was into this charged atmosphere that UN peacekeepers arrived in October 1993, led by Brigadier General Romeo Dallaire of Canada. Little could they have known that the supposed peace they were there to secure was but a mirage, and that beneath the orderly surface of society lay a carefully constructed tinderbox, awaiting only a spark to ignite. Part 5. A Harbinger Ignored. The UN's Oversight Amid Looming Genocide. In a tragic convergence of global crises and political miscalculations, the ominous signals from Rwanda that should have clutched at the world's attention were drowned out by louder calamities elsewhere. October 1993 witnessed the heated aftermath of the Battle of Mogadishu, searing images of American soldiers slain on foreign soil into public memory and igniting a blame game between President Bill Clinton and UN Secretary General Boutros Boutros Ghali. The consequence was a Security Council gun-shy about any further peacekeeping gambles. It was in this environment of international disillusionment with UN operations that Canadian Brigadier General Romeo Dallaire took command of the United Nations Assistance Mission for Rwanda, UNAMIR. Tasked with overseeing the transitional process set forth by the Arusha Accords, Dallaire was met not with robust support, but with a fraction of the forces he had sought and troops ill-equipped for the complex political instability that awaited them. The scene into which Anamir was thrust was one of precarious imbalance. Refugees swarmed the borders, seeking reprieve from neighboring turmoil, even as internally displaced Rwandans clamored for stability. Against this backdrop, the militant Hutu power elite eyed the underpowered UN presence and escalated their belligerent rhetoric. A network of checkpoints and secret hit lists became the tools 
of an emerging genocidal machine. Dallaire's dispatches back to UN headquarters resonated with a singular unsettling message. The situation is deteriorating significantly. His plea for broader authority to preempt the shadow of violence was met with silence. By definition, the peacekeepers were not enforcers, and the strictures of their mandate left them hamstrung. By early 1994, when the ominous voice of radio television Libre de Mille Collines, RTLM, teased the arrival of a little something, the stage was set for terror. Guns began to proliferate in the streets, military encampments bristled more overtly, and Dallaire's fear crescendoed into dread. Yet even as the fragrance of bloodshed filled the air, the Security Council, shrouded in ignorance of Rwanda's true condition and preoccupied by global affairs, failed to heed the signs. Their scheduled discussion of Rwanda's progress was detached from the nation's grim reality. As crises collided and focus faltered, the looming catastrophe that would soon engulf Rwanda was casting its ominous silhouette. It was not merely a threat. It was an impending certainty. And for the countless who would fall beneath the machete's merciless swing, the UN's inaction would render the idea of international protection bitterly irrelevant. It was only a question of when the dam would break. Part 6. The Fuse of Genocide ignited by an assassination. It was a departure from routine that doomed Rwandan President Habyarimana on the fateful night of April 6, 1994. The president's night flight, an exception hatched out of necessity after talks in Tanzania, proved to be his last. A missile streaked across the Kigali sky and the plane crumbled to earth, taking with it any last vestiges of order. The assassination was both a tragedy and a catalyst. It set in motion the machinery of mass homicide. The airwaves of radio television, Libre de Milcolines, RTLM, crackled with incendiary falsehoods, casting blame on the Belgians and the RPF, and called for retribution. The fuse was lit, and genocide unfurled with horrifying swiftness. In a nation already bristling with silent weapons and seething hate, the murder of Habyarimana was merely a signal. It unleashed military and paramilitary forces, chief among them the Interahamwe, upon a population marked for death. The violence that swept through Rwanda was stark and indiscriminate, as victims were chosen for their height or perceived intellect at hastily erected barricades. Amidst the mayhem, hospitals and schools became slaughterhouses rather than sanctuaries, and thousands fell to the methodical savagery of rape and murder. Even Hutus, who rejected the extremist agenda were netted in the broad sweep of killings dying alongside their families. General Bagosora ascended to a position of power through blood, and an interim government formed to lend a veneer of legitimacy to the chaos. As darkness descended upon Rwanda, Dallaire communicated to his UN superiors the apocalyptic scope of the catastrophe that was unfolding. A meticulously orchestrated campaign of terror and mass extermination took hold, the grim inventory of death mounted, and Dallaire confessed the inadequacy of his peacekeeping force, tragically under-equipped for combat. The UN, paralyzed by politics and the absence of action from the Security Council, could not bring itself to sanction and intervention. As Europe and the US scrambled to extract their citizens, France, under a veil of evacuation, 
ferried out Rwandan leaders tied to Hutu power. Accusations swirled, unacknowledged by France, that amidst this operation, arms shipments continued to flow to the Rwandan regime. Historical lessons are often harsh, and in this case, they are tragic. Studies indicate that timely UN intervention could have stemmed the tide of genocide. Yet, inaction bore its bitter fruit, as Tutsi and moderate Hutu perished by the thousands. Rwanda stands as a stark monument to the peril of indifference and the crushing weight of international neglect, a heartbreak carved into history, a genocide that could have been halted, but instead was allowed to bleed into the fabric of a nation and the conscience of the world. Part 7. In the Throes of Tragedy, the UN Retreats The Rwandan capital of Kigali reeled under the weight of unyielding crisis, its streets running rife with chaos and despair. Amidst this maelstrom of violence, many international bodies fled, leaving behind a city ghosted by the spectre of death. However, there emerged a beacon of humanity in this den of horror. Philippe Gailard of the International Committee of the Red Cross, who, alongside a diligently committed team, established an emergency hospital on a Kigali hillside. Within what was once a sanctuary of learning, they projected a fragile ray of hope. In a race against the clock and against cruelty incarnate, Red Cross ambulances navigated a gauntlet of grisly streets each morning, making life-or-death decisions that were both necessary and heart-rending. Selections of salvation, children and those teetering on death's edge, highlighted the grim reality that certain lives, those of Tutsi men, were fated to face the machete rather than mercy at the merciless barriers erected across the city. Canadian General Romeo Dallaire, commander of the UN's hapless peacekeeping force, found himself confined within the constrictions of bureaucracy and his UN mandate. His force, under-equipped, unfed, and unraveling, was left virtually impotent in the unfolding genocide, and the Belgian contingent's brutal demise only served to deepen the disarray and disheartenment. The United Nations Security Council, despite being assailed by Dallaire's relentless reports, failed to dispatch the desperately needed reinforcements. Belgium, in an attempt to obscure its own retreat, actively lobbied for a unanimous withdrawal of peacekeeping troops to not stand alone in its abandonment. Conversely, the Rwandan Patriotic Front, led by Paul Kagame, was on the move. In a military maneuver rife with implications, the RPF closed in on Kigali. All the while, RTLM radio spewed venomous vitriol, provoking further massacres and offering logistics for the distribution of death in the form of ammunition and grenades. With the RPF's progression, the interim government and the Interahamwe took flight, spreading the contagion of hatred beyond Kigali, sowing seeds of genocidal violence in every corner of Rwanda. Finally, on April 21st, over two hellish weeks into the genocide, the Security Council acted. But the action it took was retreat, not rescue. Peacekeepers were drawn down to a nominal force claiming to mediate but effectively abandoning the Rwandan people to their fate. This decision would be etched into history as one of stark ignominy, a failure emblematic of an international community faced with terror and choosing to turn away, casting the long shadow of Rwanda 
across the annals of United Nations intervention, or the tragic lack thereof. Part 8. Media Spotlight Prompts Lackluster Global Reaction to Genocide The grim calculus of genocide was manifest in Rwanda. Thousands fell each day to a campaign of carnage, the machete's edge delineating life from death upon the merest perception of ethnicity. By late April, incontrovertible evidence of the premeditated slaughter was laid bare before the United States and the wider world. Yet, paralyzed by the gravitas of the term genocide and the obligations it precipitated, the UN Security Council wavered at the very brink of moral responsibility. While international bodies hesitated, voices of clarity and conviction pierced through the fog of indecision. Oxfam's distress signal from Rwanda and General Dallaire's dire warnings to the media laid the exigency bare. The world was teetering on the brink of complicity through inaction in a genocide unfolding before its eyes. The great debate within the United Nations centered on language. The power of a single word, genocide. The reluctance of the UK and US to recognize the truth that screamed from the blood-soaked streets of Rwanda was driven by a fear. To name it would be to own it, complete with the imperative to act. But as the world argued semantics, thousands of Rwandan lives ebbed away unnoticed, overshadowed in the media by an unprecedented surge of refugees spilling into Tanzania. The attention, when it finally came, fixated on movement rather than massacre. Shockingly, amidst the clamor for denial, evidence pointed to French complicity, as financial transactions and clandestine arms shipments suggested that France had sustained the very forces orchestrating the genocide. The turning point came as Boutros Boutros Ghali, informed by the swelling tide of catastrophe, shifted stance and declared the need for intervention on an American news broadcast. This pronouncement set the wheels in motion for Unamir II, a proposed reinforcement of the beleaguered peacekeeping troops based on Dallaire's prior requests. The Security Council ratified the dispatch of troops to Rwanda through Resolution Unamir II on May 17th. Conspicuously absent was any mention of genocide, yet this decree, hollow without immediate action, saw no boots on the ground for over a month. In the lapse between promise and action, the machetes in Rwanda did not wait, and the gap served as a tragic testament to the lethargy and limitations of the international response to one of the most devastating humanitarian crises of our time. Part 9. France's Controversial Intervention Amidst the Rwandan Carnage As the spring of 1994 bled into summer, Rwanda endured an inferno of genocide that seemed unquenchable. With the extermination efforts nearing their grim completion, the Rwandan Patriotic Front, RPF, led by General Paul Kagame, forewent further investigations into the atrocities they encountered. For Kagame, the time for international intervention had long since evaporated into the thick air of desperation that now choked Rwanda. The mantle of stopping the genocide had fallen squarely on the shoulders of the RPF. Kagame's forces, with discipline and strategic acumen, quickly outmaneuvered the disorganized ranks of the Rwandan government's army. City by city, the RPF reclaimed the nation, and the interim government staggered under its advances. 
It was within this maelstrom that France, under President François Mitterrand, forged into the fray with Operation Turquoise. Declaring an intent to shield imperiled populations, the French unilateral mission moved forward, financed not by the UN, but by France itself. The move drew immediate skepticism, with observers questioning the timing and true motives behind France's sudden humanitarian resolve. The French operation, pitched amidst the waning throes of genocide, seemed a desperate gambit to Dallaire and the RPF, a seemingly selective concern for Rwandan lives that aroused suspicions of France seeking to salvage the genocidaires, the very orchestrators of the genocide. In contrast to the RPF's suspicion and Dallaire's disillusionment, elements within the Rwandan army and Hutu power echelons celebrated France's entry upon the battlefield. But the French troops, steeped in a narrative that bore little resemblance to the actualities on the ground, were soon confronted with the stark and harrowing reality of the massacres they had ostensibly come to halt. Despite the French military's initial disbelief and confusion, a safe zone was established at the behest of the Secretary-General, Boutros Boutros Ghali, ostensibly to grant sanctuary to the violence-fleeing populations. Yet this enclave inadvertently morphed into a shield for the genocidaires, beyond the reach of justice, while failing to stem the tide of violence within its bounds. Unable to staunch either the genocidal fervor or the determined advance of the RPF, the French endeavor appeared mired in moral ambiguity and operational uncertainty. The RPF's relentless march culminated in the seizure of Kigali, the Rwandan capital, on July 4th, sealing their victory and putting a climactic end to the civil war, albeit amidst the ashes of a genocide that had forever scarred the heart of Africa. Part 10. The Shadow of Complicity the international community's role in the Rwandan genocide. As the Rwandan Patriotic Front seized control of Kigali, the sounds of war fell silent over a nation shattered beyond imagination. Offices hollowed out, infrastructure decimated, and harvests lost. This was a land in the grip of annihilation, with the remains of its people scattered among the debris of conflict and the grotesque tableau of bodies in the streets. These macabre scenes within Rwanda were mirrored by the desperate flight of its populace. Propaganda-fueled terror drove a human torrent into Zaire, swelling refugee camps with a million souls trapped between the haunting past and a precarious future. Within these camps, the seeds of hatred persisted, sown anew by the remnants of Hutu power, braced for potential insurgency. The new RPF-led administration, faced with an unprecedented crisis, was pressed by international donors to inclusively reconstruct Rwanda. The dilemma, however, lay starkly in the void of moderate Hutu partners. The genocide had laid waste to any prospects of such coalition, leaving a deeply fractured society in its wake. It was only in July, months into the aftermath, that the UN launched an inquiry into the tragedy that had unfolded. Their conclusions were as categorical as they were tardy. The massacre was a premeditated genocide, spurred by ethnic animus. Their investigative reports culminated in the establishment of the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, which would eventually pass judgment on key figures like Colonel Bagosora 
and bring a measure of justice to the fore. Yet accountability extended beyond Rwanda's borders. France's entanglement in the crisis is a subject of enduring scrutiny. Evidence continues to mount that France's involvement wasn't as a neutral peacekeeper, but rather as an actor, heavily invested in preserving its own geopolitical interests, even when they abetted the machinery of genocide. The United States and the United Kingdom professed ignorance, yet were privy to ample intelligence that belied such claims. Their resistance to decisive action in the United Nations Security Council resulted in a paralyzing inaction that permitted the genocide's continuance. In the eyes of Dallaire and many others, the policies of these two nations particularly stand as examples of international power wielded with dangerous neglect and moral aloofness. As Rwanda staggered to its feet from the depths of human cruelty, the mirror held up to the world reflected a grim visage of collective failure, a testament to how the genocide was not only a product of internal extremists, but was also facilitated by the apathy and calculated disengagements of the global community. Final summary. In 1994, Rwanda became the site of one of the most systematic and brutal genocides in modern history. Within the span of a mere 100 days, the country was ravaged by a meticulously organized campaign aimed at the elimination of the Tutsi ethnic group, a horror that saw the merciless killing of approximately one million individuals. The international community, despite possessing clear indications of the looming crisis, failed to act in time. Advanced warnings and critical intelligence outlining the potential for ethnically motivated mass slaughter were largely dismissed or downplayed. The genocide's inception was neither sudden nor unpredictable. It was the outcome of entrenched ethnic tensions exacerbated by colonial legacies and stoked by a combination of political interests and hate-driven propaganda. The aftermath of the genocide left Rwanda in ruins, its social fabric torn apart, its infrastructure and economy devastated. But the implications and lessons of the genocide extend beyond Rwanda's borders prompting a global reckoning with the responsibilities and failures of international bodies and nations. The inaction and delayed responses of the United Nations, the contested intervention by France, and the hesitancy of leading world powers like the United States and the UK, reveal a disheartening reality about the international community's commitment to preventing mass atrocities. In looking back at this dark chapter, it is clear that if timely and decisive action had been taken, the scale of the tragedy could have been significantly mitigated. The Rwandan genocide stands as a stern reminder of the catastrophic consequences of international indifference and the pressing need for vigilance and collective resolve in the face of human rights violations. It underscores the duty to protect the vulnerable and the imperative to ensure that never again is more than a hollow promise. Thank you for joining me today on this journey of learning and discovery as we explored the insights of another thought-provoking book in our growing library of knowledge. If you've enjoyed our time together, please take a moment to follow our podcast, give us a five-star rating, and share 20-minute books with other knowledge seekers. Your support truly means a lot. Don't forget to join me again in the next episode, where we will delve into another enriching book. Until then, 
Happy reading and happy listening.